Chapter 27 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Chapter 27 The Trial well now said frank russell to one or two lawyers with whom he was sitting in a side room of the courthouse at e look out for breakers clayton has mounted his war-horse and is coming upon us now like leviathan from the rushes clayton is a good fellow said one of them i like him though he doesn't talk much good said russell taking his cigar from his mouth why, as the backwoodsmen say, he ain't nothing else. He is a great seventy-four pounder, charged to the muzzle with goodness. But if he should be once fired off, I'm afraid he'll carry everything out of the world with him. Because, you see, abstract goodness doesn't suit our present mortal condition. But it is a perfect godsend that he has such a case as this to manage for his maiden plea, because it just falls in with his heroic turn. Why, when I heard of it, I assure you I bestirred myself. I went about and got Smithers and Jones and Peters to put off suits so as to give him fair field and full play. For if he succeeds in this, it may give him so good a conceit of the law that he will keep on with it. Why, said the other, don't he like the law? What's the matter with the law? Oh, nothing. Only Clayton has got one of those ethereal stomachs that rise against almost everything in this world. Now there isn't more than one case in a dozen that he'll undertake. He sticks and catches just like an old bureau drawer. Some conscientious crick in his back is always taking him at a critical moment, and so he is knocked up for actual work. But this defending a slave woman will suit him to a T. She is a nice creature, isn't she? said one of them. And belongs to a good old family, said the other. Yes, said the third, and I understand his lady love has something to do with the case. Yes, said Russell, to be sure she has. The woman belongs to a family connection of hers, I'm told. Miss Gordon is a spicy little puss, one that would be apt to resent anything of that sort and the gordons are a very influential family he is sure to get the case though i'm not clear that the law is on his side by any means not said the other barrister who went by the name of will jones no said russell in fact i'm pretty clear it isn't but that will make no odds when Clayton is thoroughly waked up, he is a whole team, I can tell you. He'll take jury and judge along with him fast enough. I wonder, said one, that Barker doesn't compound the matter. Oh, Barker is one of the stubbed sort. You know, those middling kind of people who always have a spite against old families. He makes fight because it is the Gordons, and that's all. And there comes in his republicanism. He isn't going to be whipped in by the Gordons. Barker has got scotch blood in him, and he'll hang on to the case like death. Clayton will make a good speech, said Jones. Speech? That he will, said Russell. Bless me, I could lay off a good speech on it myself. Because, you see, it really was quite an outrage. 
and the woman is a presentable creature. And then there's the humane dodge. That can be taken, beside all the chivalry part of defending the helpless, and all that sort of thing. I wouldn't ask for a better thing to work up into a speech. But Clayton will do it better yet, because he is actually sincere in it. And after all said and done, there's a good deal in that. When a fellow speaks in solemn earnest, he gives a kind of weight that you can't easily get at any other way. Well, but, said one, I don't understand you, Russell. Why do you think the law isn't on Clayton's side? I'm sure it's a very clear case of terrible abuse. Oh, certainly it is, said Russell, and the man is a dolt and a brute beast and ought to be shot, and so forth. But then he hasn't really exceeded his legal limits, because, you see, the law gives to the hirer all the rights of the master. There's no getting away from that, in my opinion. Now, any master might have done all that, and nobody could have done anything about it. They do do it, for that matter, if they're bad enough, and nobody thinks of touching them. Well, I say, said Jones, Russell, you don't think that's too bad? Laws, yes, man. But the world is full of things that are too bad. It's a bad kind of place, said Russell, as he lit another cigar. Well, how do you think Clayton is going to succeed, said Jones, if the law is so clearly against him? Oh, bless you, you don't know Clayton. He is a glorious mystifier. In the first place, he mystifies himself. And now, you mark me, when a powerful fellow mystifies himself so that he really gets himself thoroughly onto his own side, there's nobody he can't mystify. I speak it in sober sadness, Jones that the want of this faculty is a great hindrance to me in certain class of cases. You see, I can put on the pathetic and heroic after a sort, but I don't take myself along with me. I don't really believe myself. There's the trouble. It's the power of self-mystification that makes what you call earnest men. If men saw the real bread and butter and green cheese of life, as I see it, the hard, dry, primitive facts, they couldn't raise such commotions as they do. Russell, it always makes me uncomfortable to hear you talk. It seems as if you don't believe in anything. Oh, yes, I do, said Russell. I believe in the multiplication table and several other things of that nature at the beginning of the arithmetic, and also that the wicked will do wickedly. But as to Clayton's splendid abstractions, I only wish him joy of them. But then I shall believe him while I hear him talk. So will you. So will all the rest of us. That's the fun of it. But the thing will be just where it was before, and I shall find it so when I wake up tomorrow morning. It's a pity such fellows as Clayton couldn't be used as we use big guns. He is death on anything he fires at, and if he only would let me load and point him, he and I together would make a firm that would sweep the land. Ah, but here he comes, upon my word. Hello, Clayton, all ready? Yes, said Clayton, I believe so. When will the case be called? Today, I'm pretty sure, said Russell. Clayton was destined to have something of an audience in his first plea. 
For the Gordons, being an influential and largely connected family, there was quite an interest excited among them in the affair. Clayton also had many warm personal friends, and his father, mother, and sister were to be present, for though residing in a different part of the state, they were at this time on a visit in the vicinity of the town of E. There is something in the first essay of a young man in any profession, like the first launching of a ship, which has a never-ceasing hold on human sympathies. Clayton's father, mother, and sister, with Nina, at the time of the dialogue we have given, were sitting together in the parlor of a friend's house in E, discussing the same event. "'I'm sure that he will get the case,' said Anne Clayton, with the confidence of a generous woman and warm-hearted sister. "'He has been showing me the course of his argument, and it is perfectly irresistible.' "'Has he said anything to you about it, father?' Judge Clayton had been walking up and down the room, with his hands behind him, with his usual air of considerate gravity. Stopping short at Anne's question, he said, "'Edward's mind and mine work so differently that I have not thought best to embarrass him by any conference on the subject. I consider the case an unfortunate one, and would rather that he could have had some other.' "'Why?' said Anne eagerly. "'Don't you think he'll gain it?' "'Not if the case goes according to law,' said Judge Clayton. "'But then Edward has a great deal of power of eloquence, and a good deal of skill in making a diversion from the main point. So that perhaps he may get the case.' "'Why?' said Nina. "'I thought cases were always decided according to the law. What else do they make laws for?' "'You are very innocent, my child,' said Judge Clayton. "'But, Father, the proof of the outrage is most abundant. Nobody could pretend to justify it.' "'Nobody will, child, but that's nothing to the case. The simple point is, did the man exceed his legal power? It's my impression he did not.' "'Father, what a horrible doctrine!' said Anne. "'I simply speak of what is,' said Judge Clayton. "'I don't pretend to justify it. "'But Edward has great power of exciting the feelings, "'and under the influence of his eloquence "'the case may go the other way, "'and humanity triumph at the expense of law.' Clayton's plea came on in the afternoon "'and justified the expectations of his friends. "'His personal presence was good.' his voice melodious, and his elocution fine. But what impressed his auditors, perhaps more than these, was a certain elevation and clearness in the moral atmosphere around him, a gravity and earnestness of conviction which gave a secret power to all he said. He took up the doctrine of the dependent relations of life, and of those rules by which they should be guided and restrained, and showed that while absolute power seems to be a necessary condition of many relations in life, both reason and common sense dictate certain limits to it. The law guarantees to the parent, the guardian, and the master the right of enforcing obedience by chastisement, and the reason for it is that the subject being supposed to be imperfectly developed, his good will on the whole be better consulted by allowing to his lawful guardian this power. The good of the subject, 
he said, is understood to be the foundation of the right. But when chastisement is inflicted without just cause, and in a manner so inconsiderate and brutal as to endanger the safety and well-being of the subject, the great foundation principle of the law is violated. The act becomes perfectly lawless, and as incapable of legal defense as it is abhorrent to every sentiment of humanity and justice. He would endeavor to show, he said, by full testimony, that the case in question was one of this sort. In examining the witnesses, Clayton showed great dignity and acuteness, and as the feeling of the court was already prepossessed in his favor, the cause evidently gathered strength as it went on. The testimony showed in the most conclusive manner the general excellence of Milly's character and the utter brutality of the outrage which had been committed upon her. In his concluding remarks, Clayton addressed the jury in a tone of great elevation and solemnity on the duty of those to whom is entrusted the guardianship of the helpless. No obligation, he said, can be stronger to an honorable mind than the obligation of entire dependence. The fact that a human being has no refuge from our power, no appeal from our decisions, so far from leading to careless security, is one of the strongest possible motives to caution and to most exact care. The African race, he said, had been bitter sufferers. Their history had been one of wrong and cruelty, painful to every honorable mind. We of the present day, who sustain the relation of slaveholder, he said, received from the hands of our fathers an awful trust. Irresponsible power is the greatest trial of humanity, and if we do not strictly guard our own moral purity in the use of it, we shall degenerate into despots and tyrants. No consideration can justify us in holding this people in slavery an hour, unless we make this slavery a guardian relation, in which our superior strength and intelligence is made the protector and educator of their simplicity and weakness. The eyes of the world are fastened upon us, he said. Our continuing in this position at all is in many quarters matter of severe animadversion. Let us therefore show, by the spirit in which we administer our laws, by the impartiality with which we protect their rights, that the master of the helpless African is his best and truest friend. It was evident, as Clayton spoke, that he carried the whole of his audience with him. The counsel on the other side felt himself much straitened. There is very little possibility of eloquence in defending a manifest act of tyranny and cruelty. And a man speaks, also a great disadvantage, who not only is faint-hearted in his own cause, but feels the force of the whole surrounding atmosphere against him. In fact, the result was that the judge charged the jury, if they found the chastisement to have been disproportionate and cruel, to give verdict for the plaintiff. The jury, with a little discussion, gave it unanimously. Accordingly, and so Clayton's first cause was won. If ever a woman feels proud of her lover, it is when she sees him as a successful public speaker. 
and Nina, when the case was over, stood half laughing, half blushing, in a circle of ladies who alternately congratulated and rallied her on Clayton's triumph. Ah, said Frank Russell, we understand the magic. The knight always fights well when his lady love looks down. Miss Gordon must have the credit of this. She took all the strength out of the other side, like the mountains of lodestone that used to draw all the nails out of their ship. I am glad, said Judge Clayton, as he walked home with his wife. I am very glad that Edward has met with such success. His nature is so fastidious that I have had my fears that he would not adhere to the law. There are many things in it, I grant, which would naturally offend a fastidious mind, and one which, like his, is always idealizing life. He has established a noble principle, said Mrs. Clayton. I wish he had, said the judge. It would have been a very ungrateful task, but I could have shattered his argument all to pieces. Oh, don't tell him so, said Mrs. Clayton apprehensively. Let him have the comfort of it. "'Certainly I shall. Edward is a good fellow, and I hope, after a while, he'll draw well in the harness.' Meanwhile, Frank Russell and Will Jones were walking along in another direction. "'Didn't I tell you so?' said Russell. "'You see Clayton run Bedford down horse and foot, and made us all as solemn as a preparatory lecture.' "'But he had a good argument,' said Jones. "'To be sure he had.' I never knew him to want that. He builds up splendid arguments always, and the only thing to be said of him, after it's all over, is, it isn't so. It's no such thing. Barker is terrible wroth, I can assure you. He swears he'll appeal the case. But that's no matter. Clayton has had his day all the same. He is evidently waked up. Oh, he has no more objection to a little popularity than you or I have now. And if we could humor him along, as we would a trout, we should have him a first-rate lawyer one of these days. Did you see Miss Gordon while he was pleading? By George! She looked so handsome I was sorry I hadn't taken her myself. Is she that dashing little flirting Miss Gordon that I heard of in New York? The very same. How came she to take a fancy to him? She? How do I know? She's as full of streaks as a tulip, and her liking for him is one of them. Did you notice her, Will? Scarf flying one way, and little curls and pennants and streamers and veil the other. Why, then, those eyes! She's alive, every inch of her. She puts me in mind of a sweet briar bush, winking and blinking, full of dewdrops, full of roses, and brisk little thorns beside. Ah, she'll keep him awake. End of chapter 27 The Trial